October 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and Germany had recently renovated various towns where Martin Luther and the Reformers had spent time and where there were significant events that happened along the way. And it just so happened that in the summer of 2018, I had a six-week renewal leave planned, and so I thought I would marry my love for church history with my love of traveling with Corey and turn part of my renewal leave into a walking tour of parts of Germany. I read several biographies on Martin Luther and read different historical guidebooks, one even that was designed for a walking tour of Germany. All of this to help us plan our route. But early in the winter of 2018, as Corey and I were discussing plans for the summer, we realized that the timing and the finances and the stages of life of our kids, none of it was adding up. Germany was off the table. It was the right decision, but I was disappointed. And I had no real alternative for a renewal leave idea, at least not one I was excited about. Now, as winter turned into spring, I passed into my 16th year of ministry and my 10th year at Lettered Streets Covenant Church, but I began to experience a, a sickness, I guess, in my soul. On the outside, things were going great. LSCC was thriving, our family was doing well, I was in a regular practice of personal devotion, and I was seeing a spiritual director on a regular basis. But there was a, a dis-ease in my soul, a sense that I was going through life rather than living it, that I was doing the right things, but holding back in some way, some significant way. If I had to articulate my feelings succinctly, I would describe it as experiencing a sort of glass ceiling that was keeping me from a depth of intimacy with God and with people that I, I didn't know I'd been bumping into my whole life. I had the nagging sense there was more to depth of life than I was experiencing, but I'd always figured out how to get by in life, well, until I couldn't anymore. This longing in my heart grew, and I knew that I wanted more depth with God. I just didn't know how to, how to get there. I wanted more openness with Corey and the kids, but I, I didn't know how to smash through that barrier. And as I came to discover, I was living under a tremendous veil of shame and deep wounds that I've been carrying for years and years before. And as I prayed and was thinking about what to do on my renewal leave that would help me actually address this soul sickness, I heard of a place called the Potter's Inn. It's a Christian retreat center up in the mountains of Colorado. And I ended up spending a week there in a cabin all by myself, except for daily counseling sessions about two to three hours in length. Maybe in the weeks to come, I'll share a little bit more about what I experienced there. But I wanted to say this, that in my preparation for that retreat, I was encouraged to read a book written by the founder of Potter's Inn, Stephen W. Smith. That book, of course, was called The Lazarus Life, Spiritual Transformation for Ordinary People. So if you're an ordinary person, and if you've ever felt like there must be more to this life with Jesus than you're experiencing, if you've ever felt a deeper longing for depth of soul, if you're fed up with just managing your behavior rather than being transformed from the inside out, then I invite you on this journey with me. This book and this sermon series will not change your life. There's no magic formula or secret sauce that will heal all your wounds or make you happy. But I believe, if you're open to it, that this series could be a catalyst 
that sets you on a trajectory of being honest with yourself and of opening yourself to the healing of Jesus in your life. I've been praying that this series will do just that. I want to give a quick introduction on this type of series, because if you've been listening to my sermons for any length of time, you'll know that a series like this one, sort of based on a book, is not typical for me. I've been committed to expository preaching, and for good reason. I am suspicious. Suspicious of self-referential interpretation of Scripture. I'm suspicious of my own tendency to focus on the topics I think we should talk about, which usually equates to the topics I feel like talking about. Preaching through the scriptures like we've been doing over the last several years, it requires me to wrestle with the Word of God and to face subjects and issues that I may not have thought of or may not have wanted to talk about at all. For the past 12 years, I've been building an exegetical foundation here at Lettered Streets Covenant Church. Together, we've gone through Genesis and Exodus and Daniel and, and, and 1 Samuel. Um, I, I've preached through Matthew and Luke and John, through Ephesians and Colossians, 1 Corinthians and most of Acts. We have a strong foundation of material, a strong foundation of teaching that is rooted in the text and the context of Scripture. This foundation is essential to reading Scripture because if we don't do the hard work of understanding the text, then we can make it say whatever we want. And that is a recipe for disaster, especially in a highly narcissistic culture like ours. But there is another way of reading the text that allows the text to read us. You may have heard of things like Lectio Divina, spiritual reading, or the Ignatian use of imagination, imagining yourself in the text and, you know, you're in the boat in the storm with Jesus and you, you know, what does the sea sound like and what does the wind feel like and can you taste the salt in your, in your mouth? That, that sort of imaginative reading. And I think that because we've established a deep foundation of exegetical rigor, that means staying true to the text and the context, then we're free to not make the text mean whatever we feel like it should mean. But then building on that foundation of solid exegetical work, of solid interpretation, we can be free to let the living word speak to us through the word of God. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that over the next couple of months, uh, this, uh, that's exactly what will happen. We are going to camp out in 44 verses of Scripture over the next two months. That's John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Some weeks we're going to go so slow we may just focus on one verse at a time. And it's my hope that as we surrender our impatience and our desire to move quickly through a book or a chapter, that God will do His work deep inside of us. A work that we're all longing for, whether we recognize it or not. So let's get started by reading this text. I'll have the words up on the screen, but I encourage you, if it's helpful for you, if, if, to close your eyes even and to experience the story again for the first time. Here it goes. John 11, 1 through 44. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were in her house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. 
And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. What a story. It starts off with suspense. We know that somebody is sick. There's geographical detail and emotional nuance. There's friendship and miracles. There are deep theological questions like, why did Jesus wait? And how did he know that this would end in glory? And why was Jesus so cryptic about it all? Over the next couple of months, we're going to explore some of these questions together. But in this introductory message, I want to suggest that the story of Lazarus is in many ways the Christian story, your story and my story. Every one of us has felt sadness and grief like Jesus did in this story. And like Mary and Martha, we've experienced the frustration over the apparent abandonment of God during times of crisis. And we've tasted the confusion as disciples of Jesus with regard to what is he doing in this broken world. We, we've experienced doubts over his timing and his effectiveness from our limited perspective. And if we are honest, we are all Lazarus. We are all Lazarus, not merely because we're all human, and all humans will eventually know the tomb, but because many of us know what it means to be partially alive. We know what it is to live on the outside, to have an external life of hearts beating and lungs breathing and going through the motions, but feeling dead on the inside, stuck in the darkness of an addiction or grief or shame or stuck in fear or insecurity, self-loathing or, or maybe arrogance and judgmentalism toward others. I say, if we're honest, we'll identify with Lazarus. And I guess I should stop there for a moment. Because we can't go much further together if we aren't honest. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can listen to these sermons and you can read the book. You can get something good to chew on. But you're not going to grow and to heal unless you can be honest with your own predicament. On page 19 of The Lazarus Life, Smith writes, Like Lazarus, you and I know what it is to not be transformed. We know what it is to be unaffected by the power of God, unaltered by the promises of Jesus, impervious as a granite slab to the penetrating work of the Spirit. Sometimes people feel that they can't be real with Jesus, that somehow lack of faith or struggle with addiction or general feelings of lostness, that those things aren't compatible with following Jesus or acceptable in the church. 
But when we read the Bible and explore God's interaction with human beings, we can come to no other conclusion than these three things. First, from the first chapter of Scripture to the last, the Bible tells us that God is a God of life. He's the creator of life, the architect of new life, the sustainer of all life. He is leading history toward an existence that is full of life with him. Second, the Bible tells us that God is ever so aware of our human struggle with sin, our struggle with failure, our experience of trauma, and our inevitable death. That God sees at the same time our beauty, and he sees our ugliness, and he sees us as we truly are, and third, he loves us. In the Bible, we see a God who tells us the truth through the prophets, through the scriptures, through the law, through his incarnation as Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit. He tells us the truth, that he sees our predicament, and that he loves us. Now, most of us don't believe the love of God, and that's why we keep on trying to keep up appearances. We try and look like we're doing the right things, while deep down we are rotting on the inside and don't know what to do with it. Earlier in the service today, you heard the scripture reading about the rich young ruler. He was a man who had been doing all the right things on the outside, following the law, obeying the rules, managing his sin. Now, some traditions in the church focus on what is wrong. It's like a theology of brokenness. And a theology of brokenness leads us to an obsession with behavior. It develops into a religion of sin management, as Dallas Willard liked to call it. Sin management focuses our energies on not doing certain bad things. And of course, that can be good. Like, if you have to focus your energy on not doing a horrible thing, that's okay in circumstances, right? But living that way, a life of sin management, a life of focusing on not doing certain bad things, that's not building a life. See, life flows from the heart, from the core of who we are. Jesus talked a lot about sinful actions, but not for the sake of talking about sinful actions. He pointed out that our actions reveal the state of our hearts, and that's what matters. So in the story of the rich young ruler, the text says that Jesus felt a love for him. And because Jesus felt a love for this man, he went past the outward appearances and he called this man in the story to give up the attachment that he had that was in the way of loving the true God. This rich man seemed to have an attachment. His his idol was wealth and material security. See, transformation begins with being loved, not earning love. It begins with Jesus the lover telling us the truth. And it begins with us, the beloved, receiving the truth from Jesus. So if you're ready to start the journey of transformation, then I encourage you to receive the love of Jesus by naming the truth. How are you, like Lazarus, in the tomb and in need of transformation? Maybe you're stuck in deep grief or pain. Or maybe you catch yourself being judgmental or lustful or fearful. Maybe you have a recognition that I am not liking the person I am becoming. 
Maybe you feel numb and apathetic toward, the, toward, toward life in general. And you have the nagging suspicion that there's got to be more to all this Jesus stuff than you're experiencing. Or maybe you're, you're suffering from cynicism and just complete lack of faith. I encourage you, between now and next Sunday, ask Jesus to identify your soul sickness. By the way, this might be a great series for you to, to jot things down in a journal because there'll be lots of opportunity for reflection as you, if you decide to read the book and definitely as you interact with these sermons. I encourage you to try and articulate your soul sickness in a few sentences or less. And let's see what happens as we expose ourselves to the story of Lazarus under the power and the love of Jesus. This I know, that Jesus is for you, that he loves you, and that he desires life for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the one who calls us forth from the grave like you did Lazarus. Thank you that you care enough to tell us the truth, to show us our soul sickness so that we can get it out in the light and expose it to your love and your transforming power. I pray that you would speak this week to me, to my sisters and brothers. Speak to us, Lord. Show us what it is that is making us ill in this moment in our lives. Transform us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.